<clears throat> Good morning. Welcome to Ironworks Church. Uh, I want to ask for a show of hands this morning. I want to know how many of you know the phrase that I'm about to use. How many of you understand this phrase? Like you've heard it, you get the general idea of what it means. The phrase is this, horse whisperer. How many of you know that phrase? And Okay, hi, please raise your hands high, I want to see. Okay, that's what I would expect. A lot of you know this phrase, a horse whisperer. It was, it's a phrase that was popularized by a movie in 1999, 1998, I think, um, uh, starring Robert Redford and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, and that was a fictional movie about this horse trainer, but, it's, but it was actually based on, an, on a real figure, a guy in real life, his name is Dan or Buck Brandeman. And this was a guy who had almost a magical uh, ability to calm horses. He could, uh, whatever, however wild the horse was, he could go in the ring with a horse and, and basically get it to heal. Um, just an, an incredible ability that he had. And he actually went around cr crisscrossing across the country, he giving uh, seminars and clinics about horse training. And it was a very powerful life. There was a documentary that was actually made about his life, a very good movie. It's a fascinating documentary. It's just called Buck. It was made about 13 years later about this guy and his whole story. It's a really great movie, actually a great movie for those of you who are learning child training, who want to learn how to train children. It's also a great movie. But this guy, the, the documentary brings out very well how in his past, Buck was abused as a child. This horse whisperer was someone who was very severely beaten as a young boy. His father beat him repeatedly. And the turning point in his life came when this foster couple took him in, and uh, their names were Forrest and Betsy Shirley. And when Forrest and Betsy Shirley took him in, what they did was they, they were able to bring Buck out of fear. He had this great fear of adults just from you know, his repeated beatings. And, and that this, this mentoring of his couple, especially Forrest, Forrest and Betsy, they brought him out of fear and then in his life, he just turned around and did that for horses. So it was, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture about how mentoring at, at a certain point, a key point, will turn a life around. It will take a tragedy and turn it into a very powerful life. Such that even, even who he was, the expression that came to, uh, to, to apply to him, the horse whisper, it touches even you and that you even heard of it. You know this concept. So it's even affected your life. That's how far it's reached. A very powerful life. And it all started, it all happened. You, 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 you wouldn't say that Forrest surely made Buck what he was. But Buck could not have been what he was without this man just bringing him into his life. And they, that's all they did. They just brought Buck into, his, into their lives. That kind of uh, mentoring is what accomplished it. This is a great picture for us this morning of the way that God has actually designed life to be and how he has intended us to come to the place where he wants us to be, to, be the, to live the lives that he wants us to live and to have the effects that he wants us to have. 
There's a word for it in Christianity. It's called discipleship. Please stand with me if you can, as you're able, and we're going to be reading from the letter of Paul to the Colossians. This is the end of chapter one in the book of Colossians that we've been going through, and this is a kind of a climax of chapter one. I'm going to be reading in the ESV version from verse 21 to, I guess, verse 29, the end of the chapter. And you can follow along or you can follow along on the screen. Again, this is Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. This is the word of scholars. Look at it differently. But this is something of a climax. Um, You know, it's the reason that the chapter division happens here. Paul didn't write his letter, we know, making chapter divisions and verse divisions. That came much later. But the people who did that, the editors who did that, recognized there was something climactic about what was going on here. Because it's a place where Paul gives a great reveal. He tells us, especially in these last couple verses, why he's doing what he's doing. Right? He comes to it and says... I'm going to tell you what it is that's motivating me, what my goal is here. And so he does that in verses 28 and 29. I want to focus on those this morning with us um, because it's a great reveal. He really lays quite an emphasis on this. You notice in verse 29, he says, for this, for this, I'm toiling For this, I'm struggling. For this, I'm working with all my energy. You say, well, what is the this? What's this this that that is the driving force of of Paul's work? What's the this? And a cursory reading, you might say, well, it's preaching the gospel, something like that. But if you look closely, the this, he tells us in verse 28, is bringing people... You see that in verse 20, he's really bringing people on a journey of faith to maturity in Christ. That's what his, his goal is. That's what motivates him, to bring people 
not just preaching the gospel in general, but to see people come from wherever they are on a journey of faith to maturity in Christ. Notice that? And you notice he says it's not just for a few. You might have told by the way I read it, verse 28, right? It's for everyone. You see that? There are three everyone's in that one verse, right? Verse 28, three everyone's. Then I'm going to warn everyone, teach everyone, bring everyone. The goal is maturity in Jesus Christ in a, for, for people in a church, for everyone, not just like a, a special few. Now, how is he going to do that? Well, it has to do with how God has designed the Christian life, how he's designed it to operate. And this is crucial. This is the sum of everything he's trying to accomplish. So let's look at how. Let's look at how he says to do it. Now, I can tell you as a pastor, I've looked for how to bring everyone to, fit, to a place of maturity. I mean, you just would as a pastor, right? If you were a pastor, this is eventually what you'd be trying to do. Is like, I'm looking for ways to present everyone mature in Christ. And what I've found, I'm sad to say, friends, what I've found is that what, what many churches put, put their weight on to do this doesn't do it. So if you look at it with a way that uh, churches normally think, it's like, well, what are we trying to do? What we're trying to get people to come on Sunday, listen to a sermon, and then go their way. And that's, uh, that's usually the emphasis, like try to get people to just come to a sermon. But, you know, coming to, a, coming to a, a church service on Sunday, listening to a sermon, going home, it doesn't do it. It doesn't. It doesn't bring people to maturity. I mean, public preaching is important. So I want you to hear me say that. It's important what we're doing here. It does accomplish certain things. But it doesn't provide the accountability for people that they need to come to maturity. It doesn't provide the context that, that happens in people's lives. So you can listen to a sermon, and sometimes, you know, I was listening. I, one time after a sermon, I was speaking with a woman, and she came to me and said, I've decided I need to leave my roommate situation. And I said, oh, okay, that sounds like a, a big decision. How come? And she said, because in the sermon today, the preacher said, we need to take a step of faith. And then he looked at me. He looked right at me. And I knew this was a word for me. I needed to take a step of faith. And I was like, whoa, okay, but uh, wait, what's the context here? Is there more that maybe should be going into this decision? This is the way she took it. And you know, it's just the nature of the medium. I know that you're not getting everything that I'm saying, right? You're listening to it, and especially if you connect with something, what happens? Your mind goes in that direction, right? And for the next few minutes, you're thinking about, it's like, how does this apply to my life, right? I know. You don't have to apologize. I know this is going on right now. So you're hearing some things. You're not hearing everything. It's just the nature of the meaning. So it's important to get certain things across. But it doesn't, it's not enough, it's not a strong tool to bring people to maturity the way that Paul is thinking about here. Going to a class is not what does it. You know, reading the right book. You know, some of us think, well, just get the right book, just get the right reading material, 
you know, come to maturity. Now, this is somebody, um, this is somebody who's saying this who actually writes books. <laughs> I just wrote a book, you know. But it, I know it can be important. It could be good. It's not something that brings people to maturity. You know, in America, especially, you look at churches, and a lot of churches in the United States really set themselves to become what we call mega churches, churches with, you know, real big numbers, hundreds, thousands of people. And, and you can tell, you know, a church like that is going to be a different animal. But a lot of churches in America said, this is our aspiration, especially since 1980. And so, you know, uh, they, they, they kind of pattern themselves to do this. And so if you look at the progression of the way churches are in America from 2000 to 2005, the number of megachurches in this country doubled. And the number of people in these churches rose by over 50%. Because people found there are actually ways for you to increase numbers in the church almost, not quite automatically, but almost automatically. There are things you can do to create big numbers in a church. And a lot of churches in this country took this as their aspiration. And I don't know how they're doing now, but before COVID uh, shutdowns happened, there were over 1,200 megachurches in the United States, 1,200. You know, a good example of this is the Willow Creek uh, Community Church in Chicago. That was what many people took as a model, Willow Creek. And that church, you know, it's kind of sadly, it's besought by scandal uh, now. But even before that, I remember in 2007, this church had thousands, thousands of people. There was a study that they did because they, they did a lot of studies in that church. And they did a study and said, what are we actually doing with the people that we're gathering here? These thousands of people, what is actually happening in their lives? They did a study. And you know what they found? They were not doing what they wanted to do. They weren't actually making disciples. They weren't bringing people to maturity in the faith. They came out and said this, like, we made a mistake and, you know, I got to credit them. You know, it's, a, it's a, to their credit that they would come out and say, okay, we've done this wrong. It's a mistake. You know, it's, it's, I think that takes a lot to do that. But that's what the leadership said. Okay, great. But this is after decades. <laughs> this is after decades of churches taking them as the model. This is after decades of, of churches saying, this is what we aspire to be. And them holding themselves up and say, this is how to do church. But it wasn't doing it. So I bring all these kind of different ways up so that you, you be prepped for what Paul wants to tell us this morning. That maturity actually doesn't come through these different ways. The way that maturity comes, you want to know, it's through intentional relationships. If I can put it that way. Through intentional relationships. So if you look at verse 28, and Paul says, this is, how, this, is how, this is what I'm laboring for. He uses this expression, teaching everyone in all wisdom. And that's, that's, that's a phrase that he used. He actually uses it again in chapter 3, the same phrase, teaching in all wisdom. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean just teaching like we think of this as, you know, we're just teaching. It doesn't mean that. Teaching all wisdom has to do with wisdom. Wisdom, what is wisdom in the Bible, friends? Wisdom is skill in living. 
Skill in living life. Skill in doing it right. Skill in doing it well. That's wisdom in the Bible. You don't get that in a life without exposure to a life that's doing that. You don't see how to live life without exposure to a life. And that, gives us, that tells us what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about exposing his life, and not just his, but others' lives, in which the Spirit is moving to other lives so that wisdom grows. Now, it, you know, it's, um, he doesn't get explicit about it in the, in the letter to the Colossians because he didn't plant this church. He didn't actually plant the church at Colossae like he did some of these others. But if you go into some of the other letters of Paul, you read about his descriptions of what he's talking about here, you find it, like in 1 Thessalonians 2, he says this, quote, For you know, this is telling him, this is what I've been doing. For you know, he says, how, like a father with his children, okay, obviously involved in their lives, like a father with his children, we, not just him, there's talking about a group of you, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. It's 1 Thessalonians 2. So he's kind of describing here what he means by teaching in all wisdom. We were with you. We had opened up our lives to you. We had brought our lives, your lives into ours. And though, so he talks in another place about going house to house. So what we're talking about here is what, what he means by discipleship. It's these authentic, directed relationships that he means. Now you go, well, that's a really interesting model of ministry. Where did he get that from? And you know the answer, right? He got it from the master himself. Because right? this is exactly what Jesus Christ did. If you go and look at what Jesus did and what, how he conducted his ministry, it's very clear. He started out, he got 12 guys, and he invested his life in them. He lived with them, right? You know that. And he actually, you go, look, he did it from the very beginning. That was part of it from the beginning he did this. And he put his life into them. He didn't choose particular people like strategically, like these are scholars or, you know, this is the political elite who are going to have great influence. No, he had criteria for choosing disciples, but it wasn't that. They're actually very diverse bunch, his 12 apostles, very diverse group of people. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to, he chose these people and he said, you come and walk with me. Come live with me. Come walk with my life. Let, let me expose my life to you. That was how he did it, Right. And that is why, you know, the, the gospel, the genre of the gospel, when you read it, it's so unique in ancient literature. There's nothing, anything like a gospel. Or even today, there's nothing really like a gospel. Because you read it and you wonder, what is this really about? Right? If you read through the gospels, you get to the end. You say, well, what's that story about? It was supposed to be about Jesus, right? But was it really about Jesus or was it about these disciples? And it's hard to tell sometimes, right? Because when he does something, everything he seems to do as part of his public ministry also seems to be a lesson for the disciples. Right? He's doing something with them. And so you're saying, which is this really about? Is this about Jesus? Is it about the disciples? That's the, that's the kind of unique nature of the gospel, of the gospel genre. 
He shared learning experiences that he was giving them. His public ministry was a series of lessons for them. And that is what, that is what the Bible means by saying disciple-making. It's, it's not someone who says yes to God. It's someone who, who lives that yes to God. That's that wisdom that comes into a life through being exposed to another life in which God had been making wisdom. Right? Now, I don't, I don't know if I really have to sell this too hard to you because when I look around, what I see in our world today is a real thirst for this. It comes out in different ways, in different areas of life. People have a real thirst for mentoring, especially as you notice the, the breakdown in the social structures around us. Like a society has so many social structures that have broken down. And the more that happens, the more you see people are alienated, they feel alone, and they have a thirst for mentoring in one way or another. What is that? That's a, that's a shadow of what Christ says the real thing, which is these intentional relationships which underlie what we call discipleship. So it's the great need of as young adults today. You see, you know, young adults come of age, especially with the, you know, breakdown of a family. There's much more of a need for the discipling that, that didn't maybe happen in the home. And, uh, and, and young people say, well, how do I treat a woman? You know, how, how do I manage finances? You know, what is humility? What is discretion? I need, I need wisdom for my life. I need, I need to know what to do with these kids. You know, it's a great thirst for that. In fact, you want to make money? Okay, those of you who are interested in making money, I have a way for you to do it. Just put a sign on your website. Life coaching. <laughs> Just put life coaching up. You will make money. I'll tell you, there are bucks to be made because of the thirst for this in our society. Or personal training, right? Just become a personal trainer. <laughs> you know, you can, make, you can make some real good money there. You put yourself into that. Or to, just pick a subject. Tutoring, tutoring, life training, life coaching. You heard it here first. Just, you know, give me a cut. That's what I want. Well, all these different kinds of mentoring, all these different kinds of coaching are really shadows of something that God designed for our lives. This real thing that should be going on and what it is, is discipling. And what that is, is really intentional relationships in your life. So I want to challenge you this morning as a church. You come here, and some of you are kind of regular members. You've been here a while. Some of you are just here new. I don't care. I want to challenge you as a believer is this part of your life? And I think for some of us, the answer is going to be different because there are different ways to form intentional relationships. And what we do in this church to facilitate that is, is for some of you, it would be a step of, for, of joining a home group. We do have a small group system here that Rob was just talking about. And for you to respond for this challenge, I think some of you probably, the way to respond to this challenge is to join a home group or start one. Rob, can, Rob is there to help you do that in your area or to, or to join one because it's in, it's in this church, this is uh, the way in which we make a pathway to forming intentional relationships. 
That would be the step for some of you. For some of you, that step is to take a look at your relationships that are in your life or your acquaintances right now and say, who is God directing me to form one of these relationships with? Where I'm caring about someone's next step in the Lord. Where I'm exposing my life to them. Who is God asking me to do that with? Because you all have acquaintances, you all have friendships. Maybe it's a non-believer. Maybe it's a believer. Actually, it doesn't matter. But God would be challenging you this morning by asking you, who is that in your life to enact the Christian life with? And this is one of these directed relationships. Make it intentional. And if, the, and if you think of someone, well, I have someone in my mind, but this is just, wait a second, this just, just seems, I, don't, I draw a blank here on how I would do this. How would I even begin to do this? Talk to us. That's why we're here. We're happy to talk to you about this, how to make this happen in your life. And we're here to coach you in it. We're here to, to tell you how to do it. You know, just uh, give, us a, give us a call. Uh, happy to talk about it because we want to grow in this way. There's nothing wrong with numbers, folks. There's nothing wrong with big numbers, having a large, large amounts of people. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just how you build that is important. You know, if you look at the way Jesus, we were talking about Jesus. If you look at the way Jesus evaluated his ministry at the end, and David Platt does a great job of pointing this out. He says when, when he gets to the end at the Last Supper and he's evaluating his ministry, he's saying, uh, he's actually recommending his ministry to the Father. He's praying and he's saying, I've done a good job. And you know how he measures how he's done a good job? This guy who's forming the church at the beginning? Tell you what, he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Father, I've done a good job. Look at all the numbers of people who are following me. Right? Because at that point, there weren't too many. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, look at all the numbers. He's planted a lot of seeds all over Israel for following him. But he doesn't say, look at the numbers. Does he? Tell you what else he doesn't say. He doesn't say, look at the programs that we've formed and the way they're helping people. Now, these are good things. Programs are not bad things. But he doesn't say, look at these, these programs and how many people we're affecting. I mean, they had a good ministry to the poor in assisting the poor with, with uh, different contributions that they did in Jesus' ministry. We know that. There's a social dimension to their ministry. But that's not what he's putting his weight on. That's not the way he's, where he's looking at the Father and saying, look at how well I've done. No. He also doesn't say, hey, look at our finances. We're in really good shape. We're, we're meeting budget every month. You know, he doesn't look at that. In fact, their finances actually weren't so great. They're, because the guy in charge was actually stealing from the money bag. So, you know, things were not good. <laughs> Uh, that good financially. But he doesn't say something like, he doesn't say, you know, look, we're cash flush. You know what Jesus Christ says to his father to recommend his accomplishment of his ministry? You know what he says to him? He says this. I kept them. I kept them. It's John chapter 17. I kept them, Father. I had these men, these 12 men, and they came to maturity. 
I brought them to a place of maturity in the faith where they could actually take the kingdom work and do it. That's what he says. That's what we're going for, friends, here. So before we come and, and uh, to the table here, it's one more thing. I, I, I do, I know I'm giving you just a bird's eye view here of discipleship, but there are three obstacles that come up in people's lives that I would just say, as I'm making this challenge to you, I'm anticipating there are three different things that might be obstacles to your responding to this challenge. Three different, three different obstacles. Too much of something, too little of something, and, and not enough of something. <laughs> the first one, too much of, the first obstacle that happens is pride. Too much pride in us. You know, because if you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, I don't really need this in my life. You need this in your life. If you sit there, if you are a Christian, you say, I don't really need to progress in my Christianity. You need to progress in your Christianity. You know? And I'll tell you that I could just look back at my life, look at the regrets of my life. There have been people who have helped me. I've been helped by a lot of people, a lot of people in my life. But I look back and I see times when I could have received mentoring, that I could be actually much more powerful life for the Lord if I had, but I didn't because at the time I said, I know what I'm doing. I know how to do this. I don't need help. I don't need to expose my life to others. People, even people who offered, people who, who actually made an invitation to me, they said, hey, come on. Um, you know, let's meet. I can, I, I, and let's, let's kind of try to go together. Let's walk together in the faith. Let's have some accountability. I said, no. And you know what it was in me? It was pride. It was just basically pridefulness. That's an obstacle to responding to this challenge. Just want you to be aware of it. Number two, second obstacle, that was too much of something. The second obstacle is too little confidence, self-confidence. I know, because I talk about introducing people so that God could, people can see what's going on in your life. And a lot of people are like, I don't have anything to give to other people. Like, are you kidding me? I'm not a pastor. I'm not a minister. I'm not one of these people who can, you know, have something to say. I don't, I don't know the Bible too well. What you don't realize is God has been building a testimony in your life at every stage. You know, I was, uh, I, I helped form a relationship, actually one of these director relationships with a woman and another woman. And as soon as this happened with this woman, just opening her life up, meaning in a directed way with this other woman, first thing that happened was this, the other woman took these, uh, these huge steps spiritually. She just experienced this breakthrough spiritually in her life. And the first woman came to me and said, how did this happen? I didn't, I didn't really do anything. <laughs> and I said, oh, yes, you did. You opened up your life to the test. You opened to her the testimony that God is building in you. And you need to realize that that's what's going on here, that the one who's really working this, the one who does this is God. Like, if you look at verse 29, it's not just Paul who's expending energy here on this it's God. God is intensely working for this too. You see that in verse 29? He powerfully works. There's a supernatural energy that goes on. It's like Paul, Paul is saying, like, uh, you know, Eric Liddell in, in uh, Chariots of Fire. Remember when he said, he said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? 
As Paul is saying something like that here, is when I disciple, you know, I feel something. I feel God doing something. And that is true. When you open your life up to another person in a directed way, you, the Holy Spirit is very present, is very present to move. And that is, is something to know as we come to like the third obstacle, third big obstacle for people is a lack of energy. Because it actually does take energy to get involved in someone else's life, to open your life to another person. It actually does take a lot. That's why Paul is talking about here in, in verse 29. It takes effort. But, you know, he seems to be okay with it. <laughs> he seems to have come to a place of, of like this is invigorating for him. It's invigorating for him because he sees the effects when it actually does. He just takes a step forward for someone in someone else's life. He sees the effect of it and empowers him because he realizes he's creating a a powerful life just in in having an intentional relationship with someone that's directed toward their spiritual maturity. And this is the way it is, friends. Whenever you look behind a life of power, a life of goodness, what you see behind it is this kind of mentoring that has taken place, this kind of of discipling. So, for example, you look behind Justin Martyr from the the early centuries. You look behind Justin Martyr, and what do you find is that old man on the beach who is willing to talk to him, to open his life up to him. You look behind Augustine, and what do you find is Bishop Ambrose, who's willing to open up his life to him. You look behind Buck Braneman, and what do you find? You find a Forrest Shirley, who's just willing to open his life up to him. You look, just pick someone, just look behind a Tim Keller, and what do you find? You find a bedraggled young man showing up on the doorstep of R.C. Sproul. That's what you find. It's no different for you and I. So friends, let us do that. Let's respond to this call. Let's respond to this challenge in the scriptures to open our lives, to have our lives opened. Let's follow our Lord. Let's grow to maturity. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me now?